This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Roshanara Chowdhury grew up in a deprived area of East London. Nothing in her early life suggested what was to come. I want to start with a short story about how everything is connected. She was, by all accounts, an outstanding student, gaining straight A's at A-level at this sixth form college. The world was her oyster. It's 2010, and British MP Stephen Timms is holding a meeting in his London electoral district. One of his constituents, Roshanara Chowdhury, enters the office and stabs him, coming close to killing him. It was clear she was going to make another stab. I tried to stop her doing that and, and didn't succeed. But then others came and pulled her away. I think what's happened to Roshnara is a, a tragedy for her as, as well as for me. Now, let's go to Yemen. Prosecutors are accusing Yemeni-American Anwar al-Awlaki of al-Qaeda links and incitement to kill foreigners. Back in the British courts, a judge points out that Roshnara has been watching al-Awlaki's sermons online and becoming extremely radicalised. Mr Justice Cook told her, you are an intelligent young lady who has absorbed immoral thoughts and wrong patterns of thinking. But who was Anwar al-Awlaki? This American, born in New Mexico, who became arguably the most influential voice of radical Islam. In 2012, a Hellfire missile fired from a CIA Predator model drone made al-Awlaki the first US citizen to be killed in a targeted drone attack. A method which by the time of the Obama administration had become a key part of the US anti-terror strategy. Barely a decade after they were first used in the war on terror, as it happens also in Yemen, drones were now being used to kill US citizens, opening a Pandora's box of next-generation warfare. This was a different kind of war. These are the doomsday weapons. I'm Arthur Snell. I was a diplomat in some of the most troubled places on planet Earth. And now I'm here to investigate the threats of today and warn you about the dangers of tomorrow. This is Doomsday Watch. Science fiction is full of robots who seeming only purpose and desire is to hunt people and drive them to extinction. This is collateral damage. Doomsday weapons. They sound scary. But we'll spend much of this episode talking about something you might well be buying for your 11-year-old this Christmas. Because the biggest revolution in warfare in the past two decades has been drones. Let's start with a definition. Luckily, I know just the person. Professor Sarah Kreps is the director of the Cornell Tech Policy Institute at Cornell University and a legal scholar. There's a book I wrote. It's called Drones, What Everyone Needs to Know, because these are, I think, fundamental questions. And so a drone has to be kind of fundamentally unmanned. 
it has to carry a payload. So that means some kind of sensor or missile. So it can't just be kind of a hobby, just to distinguish it from a hobby aircraft that you can see kind of flying in the mountains. And, uh, you know, beyond that, you know, it, it can be a, a bit ambiguous. So in some ways, you know, we could eat, we could take this back to like dirigibles, you know, balloons that would cross enemy lines with some sort of very ru- ru- rudimentary camera. And the insight behind it is a progenitor of what we see today. There's no dispute that modern drones can accomplish a remarkable array of tasks, from the mundane to the very complex, and that poses interesting questions about how easily you can get hold of these things. This is a bit the problem with the term drone, because it really describes this range of systems that go from a a toy helicopter that can take off the palm of your hands, which, by the way, can be extremely useful in in an urban conflict environment, to systems that rival in size commercial airliners. Ulrika Franke is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and an expert on drones. You are right that drones have become very accessible and Anyone can buy a you know, surprisingly powerful and capable drone uh, on, on Amazon or on, at Walmart or, or elsewhere. Um, and these systems, these commercial, these civilian systems are being used in warfare to great effect. So from your backyard to the front line, drones are everywhere now. It's astonishing to think just how much drone use has grown over the last 10 or 12 years. Professor James Rogers from the University of Southern Denmark is an expert on the implications of drone technology and leads a NATO-funded project on the vulnerabilities of the drone age. If we look back to 2010, then we can say around 60 nation states had a military drone program. As of this year, that's grown to 113 states. And then we tie in another contributing factor, which is the commercial spread of drones. You know, one thing about industry is that it seeks to do one better than the other company. And so we're seeing the quality of drone technology just increase year on year on year. Go back to around 2010, and you had drones that could fly a few kilometers. They had no live information transmission, so no real live connection in terms of the video quality that you could see from the drone. But nowadays, you have live connection, satellite-linked-up commercial drone systems that can travel 10, 20, 30, 40 kilometers away, up to even 70 kilometers, and they can be controlled from uh, from your mobile phone. If you've been following the coverage of the war in Ukraine, you'll have heard about the use of drones. Since October, the Russians appear to have been using Iranian-made Shahed, so-called kamikaze drones, with particularly destructive effect in terrorizing populations in Ukrainian cities. And on their part, the Ukrainians are using a Turkish drone, the Bayraktar, to destroy Russian tanks and armoured vehicles. The use of Turkish drones has had a transformative effect for the Ukrainian forces. They had tried to build up their own systems since 2014, really seeing that drones would be an important factor and a force multiplier for a smaller nation against a great power. But their 
access to the Bayraktar TB2, this, this drone system that's about the size of a small plane, it has cameras on board, it can be armed with laser-guided bombs. The access to that system has allowed them to take the fight to the Russians. One thing the TB2 has allowed Ukraine to do is to start to take out some of the air defence systems of the Russians, but also to pinpoint and put pressure on their longer-range artillery. Drones are the classic weapon of asymmetric warfare. A column of Russian tanks, historically a terrifying and powerful force, can be completely neutralised by a relatively cheap Turkish drone with little or no risk to Ukrainian combatants. And we've seen the impact of Iranian-made Shahid drones, crude, limited to a single use, but still effective. This was just an apartment block. There is no military target here nor anywhere near here. Unable to advance on any other front in this war, it seems Russia's tactics have been reduced to the terror bombing of cities, to keeping the Ukrainian population in a constant state of fear. The proliferation of drones globally should be seen as a, as a, as a worrying factor for Western nations and for NATO more broadly. If you look at what Ukraine has been able to achieve against Russia... Uh, a much smaller power against this great power that should, on paper, have a far more technically sophisticated and larger military, then we can see just how important it is that a smaller state can have drones and can use them to defend themselves. They can pinpoint targets. They can survey the enemy. They can use them to increase the precision of their own artillery and their longer-range systems, which we know Ukraine has been supplied with by the United States. They make a, an important contribution. Now, the discussions I've had with the MOD, with, with NATO, and with militaries around the world is, okay, so what lessons do we need to start taking from this conflict? Well, the lesson is, is that all future conflicts will likely be drone conflicts in the fact that they will have a major drone component. And the chances are that any enemy that the West faces in the future, be them non-state or smaller state or even a peer-on-peer competitor, they will have quite advanced precision strike drone systems with ever-increasing range. So this is very much a factor that we need to consider for the future of war. It's kind of like the old adage of the Second World War. We used to say that the bomber will always get through. Well, we're now in an age where I believe the drone will always get through. If that is the case, then we have unavoidable risk and a ramping up of unavoidable costs in the future of Western warfare. We need to go back in time a little. Throughout history, war has been a huge engine of creativity and innovation, as well as being the harbinger of suffering and destruction. In the early 1990s, America perhaps thought it had perfected the art of high-tech war. One way to think about the last three decades is a series of ripples emanating from February 1991, the 100-hour ground war of the US and its coalition allies against Saddam Hussein in, in, in Kuwait, known in the media as the highway of death, where and in about a two-hour window, the US Air Force and coalition air forces killed and destroyed hundreds of vehicles and a still unknown number of Iraqis. That was just a hugely disruptive event. 
That's military strategist David Kilcullen from season one talking about the US dominance in the 1991 Gulf War on the so-called Highway of Death where Iraqi troops were remorselessly destroyed by the devastating firepower of the US military. Of course, a decade later, 9-11 showed us that, despite this dominance, no one was really safe from harm. This is when the US changed tack. After 9-11, I found myself in Yemen during the very first drone strike. This was against Abu Ali al-Harithi. This was big news at the time. The idea that the US would authorise high-tech assassination operations against non-military targets, hitting someone in a moving car in a place it wasn't even at war, well, it felt like something from a dystopian futuristic movie. It's also when Sarah Kreps began focusing her work on drones. I spoke to her about the impact of those early operations. What I think the context for the 2002 strike um, is important in a couple of ways. Uh, one is if we think about the war that was going on in Afghanistan at that time, the U.S. and allies are uh, very much kind of invested on the ground in Afghanistan, but already at the time getting the case together for the war in Iraq. So we have these two different theaters and starting a third in a country where the, where the U.S. has not had authorization to strike um, is really sort of pol- problematic. And yet this individual had allegedly planned and carried out the attack in 2000 on the USS Cole that had killed a number of Navy personnel. Yeah, I think um, 17 sailors were, were, were killed, yeah. Right. So this is a way to address, I guess, this problem of counterterrorism in a manner that does not now require kind of the investment, a heavy investment of U.S. uh, material and resources, nor does it require, they think, the domestic authorization because it's seen as this imminent target that is covered under a 2001 authorization for the use of military force that says that the president can target al-Qaeda and its associates. So this is where the war on terror changed everything. The willingness to carry out lethal kinetic operations outside a conventional theatre of war was a huge departure. It showed a United States willing to tear up the rulebook to initiate new forms of conflict. The stuff of movies, of manhunts and assassinations carried out by robots, was now a reality. I think it's a really interesting insight to suggest that the sort of diffusion of a transnational terrorist group as a strong impetus for the wider use of drones for counterterrorism, I think that makes a lot of sense because you can't get authorization for every place that the a terrorist cell might exist. So to kind of get around that, let's say, accountability hurdle, we turn to these unmanned drones that, you know, if you think about just as an illustrative example, in 2011, when the U.S. and allies uh, used force in Libya, and the U.S. said on its domestic side that we did not need authorization because there were no, no boots on the ground. And so that, I think, really kind of credits drones in a way. It, it makes them even more valuable because we have these democratic societies and our leaders have to get elected and re-elected. 
and so much of the sort of narrative is about in in the U.S. keeping America safe. And so we, I think, almost overpromise that we're going to take out all of these terrorist cells that that crop up. You know, think about before 9-11, terrorist cells would crop up. We just dealt with this in law, with law enforcement. And so you end up with this kind of marriage between this new technology and national security. The, the unspoken paradox is that we don't do this. We don't use drones in, in, when, when terrorist cells crop up in France. We just do this in other countries. Then on September 11th, 2001, we were shaken out of complacency. This was a different kind of war. No armies came to our shores. Instead, a group of terrorists came to kill as many civilians as they could. So after I took office, we stepped up the war against Al-Qaeda, but we also sought to change its course. Today, Osama bin Laden is dead, and our homeland is more secure. Few of our troops are in harm's way, and over the next 19 months, they will continue to come home. Our alliances are strong, and so is our standing in the world. Whilst this innovation began with George W. Bush and his hawkish Republican administration, as is well known, Barack Obama expanded the drone warfare program. This seems counterintuitive for a liberal-minded Democratic president who'd been an opponent of the Iraq war. But Obama saw the drone program as a way to limit a wider conflict. However, the civilian casualties couldn't be ignored. In sensing reading, Judge William Young told him, the way we treat you is the measure of our own liberty. When, when we, we went... Listen for a moment to this protester. She is saying that Al-Oliki's son was killed in the same drone strike that killed the main target. For all that we are told that drones are the ultimate targeted weapon system, there are almost always civilians caught in the crossfire. Drone warfare sets up profound ethical questions, and it feels that their technology has moved faster than our ability to understand the ramifications. I'm Margaret McMillan, and I'm a historian who's very interested in international affairs and, and also in the history of war. But yes, technological advances are incorporated, but it's always been human beings who've been doing the fighting. And we've been moving further and further away from that. Um, human beings no longer necessarily do the on-the-ground fighting. More and more it's become, or certainly those nations which possess advanced technology have hoped it will become a matter of guiding drones in or guiding missiles in and not actually having boots on the ground. Um, Although, if you look at the wars going on at the moment, there certainly are still a lot of boots on the ground. What we have seen is, I think, people becoming more detached. You saw it in the Second World War. I mean, the pilots dropping bombs on Britain or on Germany or on the Netherlands or on Tokyo or wherever. But I think today it's possible to be in a bunker somewhere in Nevada, for example, and launch a drone attack halfway around the world. And you may see pictures of what you've done, but you will be so far away from it. You wonder how much you actually 
are concerned about what you're doing or how much you feel responsible. Most people around the world then think that the rule of law has been damaged in some way. And that's what the Americans are facing. They need the cooperation of the world in the fight against terror. If it looks as if they are acting as judge and jury and shooting first and asking questions later. Drones were supposed to be the ultimate clean weapon for the modern age. But drone strikes have become irretrievably associated with civilian casualties. Here's Sarah again. There's been a New York Times investigation recently suggesting that there was a sort of undercounting of civilians that were killed over this period where the U.S. has been conducting drone strikes. Where the unmanned aspect of drones, I think, creates liabilities for others is that when you have skin in the game, kind of literal skin in the game, just fundamentally more care will be taken than if you're sending in an unmanned vehicle where the risk to you is zero. And I think, again, this question of, well, how do we verify this? How do we evaluate this proposition empirically that drones cause the country that uses them to take more risks? And, you know, that's a hard, it's a hard counterfactual. But I think what we certainly have seen and not uh, too long ago in Afghanistan, as the U.S. was leaving, its sort of last salvo was a strike in response to an attack against U.S. military personnel. Unfortunately, that uh, the U.S.A. Uh, went to doing this attack and uh, killing uh, ten members of our family. We went to just fire, just the U.S. carries out as it's leaving Afghanistan a drone strike that kills ten civilians and did not. It's not even as though the U.S. killed the person it was intending to target, but this was collateral damage. They just got it completely wrong. And what military U.S. military personnel said after is that, well, we didn't have the luxury to do, to do pattern of life analysis, the luxury of time to do pattern of life analysis. And what I would suggest is that if the U.S. were sending in special forces, let's say SEAL Team 6, we're not going to send them in them in there without doing substantial work to make sure that they'll be safe. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think one of the things that we saw in this Afghanistan strike was confirmation bias, which is a, a human problem in a way. Ulrika Franke. Those advocating for new technology would, would argue, you know, this is exactly why we should be using more technology because they, they don't fall into the same traps. And, and to some extent, warfare has become much more precise, but at the same time, there are also still accidents, there, there are attacks being done on faulty intelligence, you're only so as precise as, as your intelligence is. And, and, and so it never, this whole idea of kind of lifting the fog of war and not making any mistakes anymore and really being able to avoid civilian casualties, some, somehow it has never manifested. Um, and uh, there, there, is, there is friction in war and, and the fog of war that I think is incredibly difficult. Um, to to overcome. Drones have a boomerang effect. If you rewrite the rules of warfare to enable yourself to strike at non-military targets far from a battlefield, you shouldn't be surprised if other countries, once they get their hands on similar technology, decide that they can do the same. We've spent the last 30 years trying to create that lopsided rapid victory of 1991 and focused on technologies that proved themselves in that period 
as if all we've got to do is crack the technological code. And I think the you know historical record for that last generation suggests that that's actually not the case, uh, and that we've been sort of chasing a um, a mirage of you know relatively bloodless, high tech, system of systems, battlefield centric warfare. And reality is much more messy than that. So the, the advantage of drones is that they could allow the U.S. to engage in more fronts on the war on terror without having to go to Congress to receive authorization. And so that meant that the U.S. did use drones in Somalia and uh, Yemen and pa- Pakistan without explicit authorization. But in thinking about kind of what stage that set, what foundation that set for where we are today, the U.S. had used drones so prolifically that I think it did sort of establish the model and set precedent for what other countries could do. The most worrying part of this story is proliferation. Quickly, drone technology has moved from being something available to one or two superpowers to being out of control. More than 100 states now have drones, and there are some 65 non-state groups, including terrorist organizations, with access to drones, according to James Rogers. You mentioned earlier about the Ukrainian threat of drones um, and how Ukraine has used them really quite effectively for tactical use to bomb tanks, to bomb artillery positions, to take out electronic warfare measures, uh, air defence systems. But when you look to non-state actors, to terrorist groups, you can start to see that they have almost the same quality of equipment. And in some cases, they actually have better equipment than certain nation states. If you look at Houthi rebels in Yemen, they're now able to deploy drones over 1,500 kilometres. So we're no longer talking about terrorists that can use drones within 100 kilometres within their geographical space. Instead, we're talking about terrorist groups that can stay in their geographical area. They can launch long-range precision missiles and drone systems that can target the capital cities of traditional Western allies, such as the UAE or Saudi Arabia. I mean, we've seen Abu Dhabi hit by drone strikes, international airports. We've seen international shipping being targeted. So this isn't just about state risks. All the things we associate with state use of drones might in the future be things done by terror groups, militias, or other non-state actors. You know, terrorist groups didn't used to have air forces, right? Like, for non-state actors, there really is a drone revolution in the sense that they now can attack from the air, and and they, they couldn't do this uh, only a few years ago. So this is a big kind of quantum leap, and I... I'm convinced that, unfortunately, we will see much more of this. I think we will see more high-value target assassinations by uh, non-state actors. So basically, you know, assassinations by a drone. Take the Houthi rebels of North Yemen, for example. Using Iranian-made drones, they've carried out a series of increasingly sophisticated and damaging strikes on strategic targets in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, including energy and water infrastructure, and even innocent passers-by who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. That is the danger. I mean, proliferation of weapons, and especially weapons getting into the hands of those who don't care how they use them and don't care what damage they cause. Well, look, I mean, even in, in organized states, you, you will get that happening. But I think the, the proliferation 
of sort of semi-independent or independent groups is is something we should be really concerned about. Um, you know, there, there was, I think, a fear that the various terrorist groups would get hold of, of chemical weapons. And I think we're now seeing a fear that those dedicated to a particular cause who don't care what damage they do to civilians, in fact, the more damage, the better in a way, because they're partly fed by a need for publicity, um, you know, will, if they can get their hands on something, you know, people can buy drones now. Um, you, know, you see people playing with drones in, in parks. Um, you know, it's not that far a step from, from people with drones being able to program them to carry explosives. The question of where non-state actors acquire their drones from is a surprisingly complex one. So when you look at groups like ISIS, they ended up having thousands of drones. They had their own rudimentary drone air force, and they were able to build that largely off commercial systems. You had people like Basil Hassan, who started up the Copenhagen cell in Denmark. Hassan was a Danish national, a passionate engineer with a passion for air power, who saw that there was a, a bit of a loophole in the system, and he could acquire these commercial drones, send them through to Turkey, get them smuggled over the border, and then have them put together and weaponized within the captured Mosul University. Hassan himself tried to go out to join ISIS, got captured in Turkey, put in prison for two weeks, and then um, perhaps unwisely was exchanged in a prisoner swap with ISIS. He then went on to really just expand the ISIS drone fleet uh, time and time again. And we look at that particular period, and, and during the interviews that I've done over a number of years now, we know that Operation Inherent Resolve, the US-led Western force to defeat ISIS, was facing a persistent drone threat. We're talking as many as 83 different drones within the sky within 24 hours. So not low and slow drones, but multiples of drones flying high in the sky. Another way, of course, is through state support. And it has been alleged that a number of state design systems have fallen into the hands of a number of terrorist proxy groups. Um, and, and what we've seen at this moment in time, and I, while I was out in the Middle East, I was able to inspect captured Houthi drones, is that the state systems that they first acquire are then almost immediately cast or recast in fiberglass. So you have that aerodynamic shell. Then you need the, the technical bits. And so what I found while I was inspecting Houthi drones was that you had motors that were commercial in origin, taken from European suppliers. Uh, you had wiring that was commercial and Chinese in origin. And am I saying here that commercial manufacturers are deliberately supplying terrorists across the other side of the world? Well, no, of course not. But commercial drones are ubiquitous. Uh, anyone can buy them. And so these systems can fall into the hands of terrorist groups who now make these kind of Frankenstein's monster hybrid system drones that are a bit of state design and a bit of commercial technology. And that's pretty worrying because it means that we've probably reached a point now where we have the unchecked proliferation of drone systems that can spread across terrorist groups around the world. When we think of killer robots, the first thing that comes to mind 
is the Terminator metal skull hunting humans gun in hand. Maybe the Cylons masked as people repaired to lead robotic war. If we're thinking a little more modern, there's the robot hounds of Black Mirror knives out ready to find people where they hide. Science fiction is full of robots whose seeming only purpose and desire is to hunt people and drive them to extinction, which makes the actual existence of hound-shaped robots, of people-shaped robots guided by autonomous systems in the real world feel really ominous. There's something haunting, something looming, something menacing about the image of a robot dog with a sniper rifle mounted on its back, of a robot tank with a turret but no human driver, of a drone flying overhead, its unblinking eye watching everything around. But the reality is that these systems are in development. These systems are not out to kill humans, but are out to aid other humans in their bloody business. These are machines used by people against other people. And the reality of robot war is about tools built to make it so that humans can do war better. I am Kelsey Atherton. I'm a journalist based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I write about war, robots, and other bad futures. So what does that dystopian future look like? Kelsey has worked through these nightmare scenarios, so you don't have to. As he put it, the reality isn't quite like the Terminator movie, but there have been some unnerving moments. The clearest example, it was in October 2020, so there was a very COVID remote conference, and I was watching a presentation on the sensor technology, and they, the person doing the, the pitch for the sensor technology talked about how it's going to be able to do friend and foe recognition, not just that it'll be able to identify people, but we'll be able to tell if this is a uniformed soldier of like a, a U.S. soldier or a NATO ally or something. And it will be able to tell it apart from an insurgent or an enemy force. And at the same time, on the screen, it had the camera showing a person walking for a parking lot. Now, the camera did put like a little bubble around the person walking in the parking lot, identifying them as something, and it had a different bubble around the car, but it also identified the tree with the same bubble around the person. And this was in the sales pitch. And I trust that there are people who take the problem very seriously. I trust that they are doing the work to make the sensors work as they do, but it is a hard problem to begin with. It is a harder problem if you overpromise. And when the demands of we need something that does this in the hands of the people doing the fighting outpace the technology isn't ready yet, we're going to get problems. So if it isn't the Terminator, what is it? So there's robot dogs as a broad category. They have a couple specific names. Um, Ghost Robotics is the one um, that's seen use and or deployment in testing and for base patrol by the U.S. military. It's um, a QUGV for quadruped unmanned ground vehicle, which it, it's a robot dog. No one's going to call it a QUGV. And then the other one that is big and popular is uh, and seen widely and all robot dogs sort of get identified by is Spot by Boston Dynamics. They make very, very catchy videos of like robots doing all sorts of fun and entertaining things like jumping or dance routines. Or they had a Super Bowl commercial where a robot dog with an arm on its back um, threw a beer to a security guard and that was a fun time so that's sort of how these are being framed and introduced but the thing that they're 
doing is go places or do things that uh, people can't quite go. In Hawaii, they'll use them to screen homeless people for COVID or at least take their temperatures, which sort of hints at what they're kind of doing, which is it's a design, it's a way to put a machine in between people and the other people they have to interact with that they're afraid of. And into this dystopian mix come the practical applications. This is also a story about the leading edge of automated tech. There are robots used in many ways. Drones are the most obvious, and those that's a huge, huge category, um, just very briefly, that includes quadcopters like uh, buy-off-the-shelf models that a unit of infantry brings with them into the battle. Um, that was such a big point in the Ukraine war that um, some provinces used their own provincial funds to buy quadcopters for their infantry because they felt they were uh, like blind kittens without them. Um, so that's a huge use of robots at a small scale. And then all the way up to big overhead drones, the Bayraktar is the big one from the Ukraine war, the uh, Reaper and Global Hawk from US. And what those do, the autonomous parts of those machines is how they fly. The Air Force's term it uses for all this stuff is remotely piloted. And they try to stretch that term to cover robots at sea and robots on the ground too, where there's a human guiding them, pointing out waypoints on like a tablet to say you're going to walk from here to here to here. And then what the robot is doing autonomously is it's making sure that when it walks, it balances all four legs or that it rolls its tracks fine over the terrain it's being driven through. So autonomy is, in a lot of senses, guiding it that way. It's handling the very, very straightforward tasks. So there's other uses of AI. Sensors will incorporate some kind of autonomous or uh, automated algorithmic processing of the information they see, object recognition. But we've yet to see any military. I say, what we want is a gun on a robot dog that shoots people at its own discretion. And so to the extent that there is any genie we can keep in the bottle, it is that specifically. It is that the autonomous control over a lethal weapon to initiate it on its own. The real tension is how much commanders are willing to give up control to an automated process that they wouldn't control that they wouldn't give to a soldier. And it's unlikely they will want to put full faith in autonomous systems to fight the war instead of people they can trust and direct. Perhaps the scariest idea of all is drones carrying out attacks autonomously, without a human in control making the decisions. This is the bit in the movie where the robots take over. According to a UN report, in 2020 in Libya, an AI-enabled Turkish-made drone carried out a lethal attack against rebels in the east of the country with no human involvement. This is a really interesting question because the honest answer is we don't know. So what we currently have is this weird situation where we have systems that according to the manufacturer and as far as we know, are able to act quite autonomously and indeed also fire autonomously. The thing is, we don't necessarily know whether they are already 
being used that way. So we had these reports coming out of a United Nations report about an, an autonomous system being used in Libya and allegedly, you know, kind of finding its, its targets autonomously and engaging them autonomously. But, but it's not entirely clear whether that actually happens. It's just that there was a system being used there that is able to do things quite autonomously. And, and, and that's it. But I wouldn't be able to really pinpoint uh, the occasion and say, this is the moment where we really had full uh, autonomy in, in the battle space. I'm very glad you mentioned autonomy because that's where I wanted to go next. Um, where do you think we're going with this? So this is, of course, the the, the big question that everyone is, is grappling with. And we don't, quite honestly, we don't know yet. Um, this technology is still very much developing. And then, and this is something I always emphasize because it's so important, when you talk about new military technology, it's not just about the technology itself, but it's also about how you use it. And the prime example for this is the tank, right? The tank was first brought onto the battlefield in 1916. But it really made a difference in, in the Second World War when the German Wehrmacht figured out how to use tanks to great effect, combining them with radios, creating tank units that could operate autonomously. So that's the Blitzkrieg strategy, right? the, the Blitzkrieg um, doctrine. Um, and this really made a difference. So it wasn't just about like who built the first tank and who put it on the battlefield first, but how how were they being used to great effect? So we have these basically these level of uncertainty when it comes to autonomous and AI-enabled systems. This means that it's incredibly difficult to say where we are going. I mean, there are certain things that seem, seem rather obvious, which is that warfare will become ever faster which, by the way, will create this kind of chain reaction in that, you know, warfare is becoming faster because of the use of these new technologies and that this, this will require using ever more of these new technologies and putting in ever more autonomy because warfare is becoming faster, right? So there's this, this chain reaction or this kind of circular, circular logic. Um, ethical questions are playing a, a big role in the discussion at the moment, and, and rightly so. There is a question of, you know, whether we want to delegate decisions over life and death to machines, whether that is something that we we can accept, um, how do we keep the human in the loop, so to speak, or meaningful human control, which is the kind of invoke term uh, at, at the moment. Um, there are discussions happening not only in MODs around the world, but also at the United Nations in, in Geneva where there are discussions on whether to ban autonomous systems or how to how to limit them. Uh, these, th this is incredibly difficult. And as you pointed out, there is the problem that we may want to say we want to ban certain systems, but maybe the other side or other countries aren't, aren't so comfortable. The technology exists. We can't turn back the clock. So how do we manage these machines? So the way in which I like to think about it is in terms of a human in the loop of control, on the loop of control, and outside the loop of control. And it's, it just helps us understand where we've come from and, and where we're heading in terms of just how much human beings will continue to have control over killer weapon systems into the future. So at this moment in time, humans are in the loop of control. You can have as many as seven people behind one drone command and control system. Seven people within that ground control station based thousands of miles away in somewhere like Creech Air Force Base, Nevada. So
So when it comes to a drone taking a strike, like we saw with the recent assassination in Kabul or the botch strike, a time-sensitive strike that happened during the US uh, rapid withdrawal from Afghanistan, then you can safely say that it's been through the decision-making process of, of many human beings, no matter if it was the right decision or wrong. Now, that's very time-consuming. Um, it is expensive. And so what militaries are seeking to do is to try and place humans more on the loop of control. And so this is something you can see with some of the latest generations of, of drone technologies. They have the potential to be set on a preset route, a, a kind of loitering course to gather intelligence, and you could have one drone operator. And so these drones will fly around the world, and once they pick something up based upon their incredibly sensitive software, and then the human who's on the loop of control will then agree whether or not the drone should take that strike. Now, of course, when we come in times of supreme emergency, we know that a number of legal and ethical norms can fly out of the window. And so what I see as potentially worrying for the future is that we could have, let's say, 100 drones all around the world, in different parts of the world, hovering high above designated zones of conflict. And you can have one drone operator still. But if you needed to take that decision to strike really quickly, if it was a time-sensitive strike, then there's also the capacity for the drone to define off a preset of criteria that that target it's seen seems to be a legitimate target to strike and can therefore take the strike itself. This is an incredibly worrying future because this is where you have the human outside that loop of control the drone is making that decision it is autonomous in that capacity and then it's only later once the strike is taken that a human can fully judge whether that decision was right or wrong this is where you have movements now that are seeking to ban killer robots this is where you start to lose any notion of meaningful or appropriate human control which are at the heart of policy debate at the moment in time. I think this, this genie is out of the bottle when it comes to drone technology. And part of that is that you can take a civilian drone, which is perfectly legal, and turn it into a flying explosive. So how do you even regulate that? It has kept many people busy. There are groups that are trying to regulate this. Uh, but at the same time, I just think that this technology is so ubiquitous now and, and diffuse that it's nearly impossible to find ways to actually contain it. So in that sense, I think it's very different from, let's say, um, a non-proliferation regime when it comes to nuclear weapons, where you have kind of a certain expertise, a certain technology that is more kind of feasible to regulate um, and, and also the cost factor with nuclear weapons. So there are all these factors that I think make it so that nuclear technology can be much more easily and practically regulated than something like a drone. Our ability to defend against drones is slow, to say the least. 
If we look at defence on the battlefield, then you could say that more practical advancements have been made. You look at the high-intensity laser systems that are used to melt drones out of the sky. You look at ever more powerful microwave systems or radio wave blocking systems, and you can see that on the battlefield, they've started to find ways to, to protect sites. That's all well and good. But as drone systems are able to have ever smarter computers put inside them, they're going to be able to evade. You look at the world's most effective, most expensive air defense system, the Iron Dome in Israel. There are those who are saying that 10 to 20% of these drones, missiles and rocket systems are getting through. And that's something that has to be presently in the mind of policymakers. Now let's switch the location and look at the urban defence of drone systems. The trouble is, is that a lot of the counter drone systems that have been developed for the battlefield will be incredibly dangerous to use within urban centres. What would be the effects of a microwave radiating pulse on a hospital located five kilometres away? What would be the effect of a radio jammer being used around an airport with civil aviation? And I don't need to go into detail about how a, a high-intensity laser being used in the skies above somewhere like London might just be a little bit dangerous for the multiple airports that come in and out of the city. And also that doesn't take into account the fact that in the future we're likely to use drones as our own vital logistical and transport infrastructure. How is it that we start to combat drones that might spoof that system, that might hack that system, that might be able to infiltrate it, conducting state espionage or to carry out more kinetic attacks? Do we then have a world where we're going to have to bring down all of our drones and therefore disable a vital infrastructure in itself? These are the questions that we have to wrestle with in an incredibly complex urban environment, and every urban environment, every city is different, and so you need a bespoke solution and bespoke technologies to the cities and the key sites you're trying to protect. My big hope, in a way, is that there are certain risks that everyone should agree are problematic and we need to avoid. Um, so an arms race is, is one of those risks. So-called flash wars would be another. So we're talking here about the danger of maybe there is a mistake, there is there is a glitch, you know, something is happening, a system is kind of creating an, an attack and another autonomous system is reacting to that and all of a sudden you have these military confrontations that no one wanted, so-called flash wars. I think it should be rather clear that no one wants this and that we should find ways on how to how to avoid these escalatory dynamics. So there's a lot of international um, discussion needed and, and some of it is taking place, but, but we are also in a world where you know international cooperation is isn't exactly high on the agenda between certain parties and this is making all of this much much harder drones and autonomous weapons are transforming conflict but in some aspects warfare has been the same for thousands of years one thing that we tend to forget and maybe conveniently forget is that very very often in most cases new technologies come on top 
of existing ones in the sense that the existing ones don't necessarily become obsolete. You know, some elements become obsolete. Uh, yes, of course, you know, if you have a machine gun, you don't use bow and arrow anymore. But very often you still have typical warfare as we imagine it. Um, and then technology comes on top. Um, and I would say that in a way we're very much seeing this in Ukraine at the moment. Yes, there are some modern technologies, drones, etc. that are playing a role in Ukraine, but you still have trench warfare. Artillery is still really important. Tanks are still really important. All of this still plays a role. And so to put this very bluntly, just because the next war may start with cyber attacks, may start with satellites being shot down, may involve AI and drones, doesn't mean that you don't in the end still have 18 year olds dying somewhere in the mud. The autonomous weapons arms race is a symptom of something we've seen throughout this series, a world where the rules don't apply anymore. With new drone technologies, countries and non-state actors can press their advantage, projecting their power and influence with new types of operations. Don't forget that the first autonomous drone strike took place in Libya using a relatively cheap Turkish drone, not in some superpower conflict. The war in Libya is complicated, a conflict between, among others, something calling itself the Libyan National Army, which is barely Libyan, definitely not national, and hardly an army, and the actual government of Libya, which also struggles to govern Libya, or have a functioning army for that matter. These chaotic, multifaceted conflicts are the perfect proving ground for technologies that don't respect human rights or the laws of war. But everything is connected. And what is going on in Libya is feeding and feeding off the wider crisis in the Sahel region, stretching from the Atlantic Ocean to the Red Sea. Here, catastrophic climate change and regional conflict has left a band of failed states, has exported terror to Europe and is humiliated the region's colonial power, France. This is the desert flashpoint, the crisis in the Sahel. If you want to hear the next episode right now, subscribe to Patreon. For early access, bonus content and much more besides, search Patreon Doomsday Watch before it's too late. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production.